Owen Good is an Northern Irish translator of Hungarian poetry and prose. He is the translator of Christina Todd's short story collection Pixel, Sword Long's The Birth of Emma Kay. His translations have been published in Modern Poetry in Translation and The Poetry Review. He also co-edits Continental Literary Magazine and Hungarian Literature Online. He teaches translations too. His rendition of Christina Todd's work received close approximations prize and was nominated for the TA First Translation Prize, the EBRD Literary Prize and the Warwick Prize for Women in Translation. In this episode, he spoke about his craft, work, contemporary Hungarian literature and about his authors Christina Todd and Salt Long. Welcome to our podcast, Harshniyam Bhoven. Thank you for coming over to our podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's it's a real honor. You moved to Budapest and uh, started translating Hungarian literature into English. Please tell us about it. Absolutely. At university in London, I studied at the School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies. at UCL and there they have a, a Hungarian department. It was at university that I first came across Hungarian. Uh, I took it on as part of my as part of my course and didn't expect it to become the main part of my studies. I suppose slowly I I realized that it was the most interesting thing that I was actually studying. I really liked my teacher as well and I really enjoyed the texts that we worked on. We began translating. So I really began translating at university as a language learning uh method. And after I graduated from university, then moved to Budapest to master the language and to teach English for a couple of years perhaps. I had a teaching certificate and I didn't expect to stay as long as I stayed and I didn't expect to get into translation professionally. I never really expected to get into translation professionally, which is something that I hear from quite a lot of translators. I ended up when I published something for the first time or rather I I I continued translating in Budapest more as a hobby. I would choose excerpts from novels that I was reading or I would choose a poem that I liked. and work on the translation and kept in touch with my old teachers and kept continued to send them work for review and ask for feedback and it was when i published a poem by christina tot in 2014 i think that i realized that maybe something was working here and maybe other people would enjoy what i was doing and that was when i took on i joined a translation course here in budapest a one year literary translation course since that point i haven't really stopped and i've been doing it more and more over the past years which is the first full length book translation that you have done pixel by christina tort was the first full length uh, book translation that i that i did can you tell us in detail about it how you approached when did you first read the book and how did you approach and how it went on how you got it published finally So I first read Pixel in those early years my first few years in Budapest it came as a recommendation from my teacher 
she believed that I would enjoy it. And she was right. I, I really did enjoy it. And it was a great it was a great book to read at that time as well, because it paints a very accurate uh, picture of, of Budapest as well, I think. I must have felt some sort of connection with the, with the writer and, and, and the writing. After reading, I, I returned to the text and I began translating excerpts or, or short stories from the book and trying to uh, get those published in uh, journals. It was when I received a sample translation grant from the uh, Hungarian State Literary Institute that somebody else picked up on what I was doing, that I was working on this book by Christina Tóth, and uh, Ottili Molzit, the series editor at the Hungarian List with Seagull Books, got in touch with me and said that she really likes Christina Tóth, she really likes Pixel, and she's seen some of my translations as well, and she would like me to finish the book for Seagull. London, I understand, is uh, literally a very vibrant city. Even uh, many of the translators that we are speaking to, they are based out of London. How do you find Budapest in that respect? Budapest is also a very vibrant city. There is a strong literature scene here as well. Um, if we're talking about literature, there, there, there's, a, there's, there's a very strong literary scene here in Budapest. There are um, plenty of cafes that hold, regularly hold literary events. There are uh, currently, or rather last week, there were two book festivals happening at the same time. So it's, there's, there's, there's plenty going on here. And then in the summer times, there are camps, there are translation camps, there are endless writers' camps. So it really is quite vibrant. And then the city itself, besides literature, is still is a very buzzing city. There's a lot of life here. You translate uh, poetry also. Technically, what are the differences in translations? I think in the beginning, I, I almost find poetry simpler to translate than prose somehow, purely because prose was so much more open-ended and boundless. Whereas a poem is very quantifiable. You can read it from beginning to end, perhaps in 30 seconds or a couple of minutes, and you can return to the start and go through it again and again. So it's a much easier object to polish and refine. Whereas with prose, it just feels endless, or it certainly did in, in, in the beginning. I actually find poetry quite a bit more accessible as a translator at the beginning, purely because you could sit, you could refine one small section of text much more easily. It certainly needs, you need to either have a good ear or a good eye, but I think most translators have that. Um, I think a lot of translators veer away from poetry, but perhaps I think people are afraid that they don't have enough knowledge of metrical systems and rhyming systems. But I think if you have a good ear and you have a good eye, then you will enjoy it. I enjoy, in poetry, I enjoy the rhythm of these, of the poems. I enjoy the rhythm of the language. I think that's what carries me through. And then with prose, I'm becoming more sensitive to the rhythm now. Personally, I find prose much more difficult sometimes, which might be an unusual answer to this question, but it's, it requires a different kind of ear. Sometimes I suppose the poem might present a problem 
And you wonder how to represent this beautiful metaphor or this beautiful turn of phrase so accurately in your target language, English, and you go through five or six different versions and you leave it for a week and you come back to it and you have five or six new versions and then you leave it for a week or a month and you come back to it and you come up with new versions and eventually you come back to it and you look at the original again and you realize that, why don't I just do what she did on the page? <laughs> and you end up putting <laughs> really the original... Uh, mirror translation that you perhaps came up with in your first in your very first draft the work is already done for you sometimes you just trick yourself into working harder writers they talk about the influence of other great writers and likewise uh, do you closely follow the works of any other translator i wouldn't say that i closely follow the works of any other translators i think i try to read uh, around the work of other translators generally especially translating from Hungarian, because they will have solutions to the same problems that I have a lot of the time. And obviously just out of curiosity, Daniel Han published his translation diary, which I read. It was, I read that earlier this year, and that was very insightful. Any form of translation diary essays on writing, creative writing, are very instructive, I find. Yeah, we interviewed uh, Daniel and uh, I read that book. I just loved it. I just loved it. And I was wondering uh, if I knew Spanish. You know Spanish a bit? I know some Spanish. I did Spanish and French at school. So I was able to understand some of the problems to a degree. But obviously, I, I couldn't understand the, the nuances like Danny can. Your mother tongue is English. English. Yeah. And uh, you are translating from Hungarian to English. Now, do you think uh, Hungarian translating Hungarian literature into English um, will have any advantage over you or disadvantage for that matter? Absolutely. I translate Hungarian from English when Hungarian is my second language. I didn't grow up with Hungarian. I learned Hungarian. I started learning Hungarian at the age of 18. So even today, after um, years of studying and practicing Hungarian, it is still a more difficult process for me to read in Hungarian than it is for me to read in English. And when I read Hungarian, it will take me time and it will depend on the uh, it will require me to consult others in order to understand all the nuances or details or to try to understand all the nuances of the details that are taking place in the writing. Um, that is something that somebody who has Hungarian as a first language will be able to do much better. I often send my translations to friends who are working perhaps in the opposite direction who translate from hung English to Hungarian and to our Hungarian native speakers and they read my translation and they review it or they compare it with the original and they will write in comments and help me out explain the things they'll say oh and this is very nice but it's completely wrong this is or they'll just say it's terrible full stop that is a step in in my process quite regularly that I ask others to review my work or I have to consult with others to, to really understand things I think if someone is translating from Hungarian to English who has Hungarian as a native language, that they're not going to have this, the, the same problem to, to the same degree that I do. 
now i feel that uh, it's the other way around when it's not your first language when it's not your mother tongue you are more cautious probably that's an advantage for you as a translator other than teaching uh, and translating uh, you are also an editor of uh, hungarian literature online and uh, continental literary magazine what exactly that you do i've been working for hungarian literature online for longer i've been working there since 2016 it's an independent literary hub for all things hungarian we publish a lot of reviews of hungarian works that have already been translated and have recently been released in english or we publish reviews of books that are yet to be translated quite often we try to show a we try to give a non-hungarian reading audience access to the hungarian literary journalism and hungarian literary criticism and to write about books that have perhaps been interesting in the hungarian scene that wouldn't be known otherwise we also publish interviews with hungarian authors quite regularly or we look around the hungarian literary journalism for interesting essays that we might want to publish to translate and publish in, in english as well besides news and excerpts from of tran- translators excerpts of novels short stories and poetry things like that as well at the continental literary magazine it is a quarterly print magazine that has the goal of promoting hungarian literature and literature from the region in english translation abroad so that means primarily in in the uk and in the us there where i'm a co-editor and also one of the resident translators we publish hungarian literature in translation but also uh, czech polish slovakian and we have austrian we've published ukrainian authors russian and romanian as well publish western authors as well so the idea is to include western and authors from central eastern europe together in the same volume that's a lot of work actually <laughs> it's it's a lot of work yeah especially the magazine is quarterly and it's sizable it's plenty of work for us editors it's a print magazine or an online magazine it's a print magazine you teach uh, translations too can you give us an overview of uh, methodology and uh, some important topics you cover in that course absolutely i teach translation at um a university here in budapest paisman university and there i used to teach undergrad literary translation but now it's mostly a i mostly teach on a weekend um course for those it's it's a postgrad weekend uh, literary translation course for people who may want to i don't know ch- uh, make take a change in their career and move into literary translation or those who are already studying literary translation at university and want some extra want to do more of it in their free time for some insane reason it works usually my classes work in quite a practical way it's quite hands on i set in texts we translate often during the class working on the text in groups and discussing problems as they arise and i'm teaching them probably important to note that i'm teaching them hungarian to english translation 
and these are mostly Hungarian students. So the the focus of their the focus of their course is usually the opposite direction. But we have this class as well in which which I lead, and that's Hungarian to English translation. So this is also for them um, a challenge of translating or writing in their second language as well. So we address problems of writing in English as well as problems of translation in a, a workshop style format. It's very enjoyable. It's very good pairing with translation because translation is so solitary, of course. It's great to have teaching on the side where you can actually work with people and do something that is quite social. And it's great to see other people engaging with translation and engaging with texts in the same way that you do as well. It, it can be quite encouraging. Often I bring in texts that I might be working on or have worked on. And I regularly learn new things about those texts um, through, the, th through the seminars. Can you talk uh, a little bit about contemporary Hungarian literature? Who are the major writers and themes that they are dealing with and the trends? Hungarian literature is quite diverse. It's very rich and very diverse. There are endless number of authors who I could who I could mention the themes I suppose is perhaps an easier thing to talk about if I was just to go through the list of people who I'm more familiar with Christina Tot or Joat Lang or Pal Zavad or Ferenc Barnash they all deal with issues of the 20th century or I suppose the historical events of, of 20th century in Hungary this remains a common theme for uh, a lot of Hungarian writers de uh, dealing with traumas of, of the 20th century. There are themes of human relationships. Looking at Christina Toth, for example, she's very, she writes a lot about human relationships, very universal themes in, in literatures, dealing with loss, dealing with trauma carried on through the generations in, within families, for example. Then there are writers who deal perhaps with more philosophical questions. Short Lang would be another would be another example of that. It's this week is, as we're recording, is the week that the new Nobel Prize will be announced, and um, there are two Hungarian nominees who are quite high up there on the on the, the bookies lists: László Krasnohorkai and Peter Nádas, who also both deal with issues of the 20th century, but have very different styles. As the styles range greatly in Hungarian as well. Krasnohorkai's style is a kind of tumbling prose; these endless sentences that that kind of go on and develop one from the other. Nádas, we have a kind of meticulous observation, much more clean and crisp. If we look at Ferenc Barnash, who's an author I'm working on at the minute, his style is very, I suppose, clean and crisp, but, but very uncertain of itself and also reluctant to draw a full stop. A lot of uh, writing is, is, is fragmentary. Uh, as I was saying, Ferenc Barnash, his novel that I'm currently working on, which has the title the working title of Other Death is entirely uh, broken down into sort of passages of text. And even by the end, you don't really have a clear picture of, of the order of events. These are all examples of, of key writers in, in contemporary Hungarian fiction, literary fiction. But the way in which the fiction is changed, the literature scene is changing here is, is influenced a lot by 
I think genre fiction is now having quite a large uh, influence on, on, on literary fiction as well. So more popular forms of fiction are now leaking into literary fiction. Younger writers who in their 40s and younger are engaging a lot more with genre fiction. These could be things like science fiction, horror, and are engaging with them with a very literary perspective, engaging it in a very intellectual level. I see in these genre, in genre fiction as well, that it is more capable of addressing current issues. Literary fiction tends to, it's still dwelling on, on, on traumas from the 20th century, whereas the genre fiction in science fiction, for example, that's where you see the most current social critique, I find. Something which simply doesn't happen in, in a, in literary prose. Other forms, other, we have other kinds of literature which are beginning to find a foothold in Hungarian literature that hasn't existed before. Queer literature and LGBTQ focused literature has begun to grow in the last few years as well. It's quite young in, in, in the Hungarian scene. You have writers like Adam Nadosti who writes true and fictional stories of queer characters, both in prose and in poetry as well. Poets such as Andras Gerevich, who have gone a long way in creating a Hungarian queer poetry. And I should also mention, actually, Edina Svoren, who is a very good short story writer, who writes quite grotesque, often hilarious as well, short stories that can be very satirical but play with gender in an interesting way because the Hungarian language has no gender. And so often these, the genders of the characters won't be revealed in ways that are crucial to your interpretation of the story. Before we get to the book, uh, The Birth of Emma Kane, the other book uh, you translated, Collection of Short Stories, is Pixel. Uh, please tell us about it. Pixel is a collection of short stories by uh, Christina Toth. I suppose it's, it could be what you call a short story cycle in that the short stories overlap the characters from them reoccur. Um, you are, the reader finds themselves also in the same locations again. Um, the same character might be the protagonist of the short story, but they might also turn up in the background of a short story. You might see the same objects and possessions reoccurring throughout the short stories as well. Perhaps something that belongs to one character in an earlier story turns up in a later story in somebody else's apartment. So there is this sense of connection between all of the stories. Also, there's a sense of time passing as well. When a character reappears, perhaps 10 years may have passed, you may notice that something has changed about their, even about their physical appearance, something may have changed. They may have had an operation. Christina Toth is a writer who I think likes sitting on public transport and collecting stories on, on the bus. Uh, she likes listening into other people's conversations and getting these little snippets of, of uh, strangers' lives in the city. And when we read these stories, similarly, we get snippets of characters' lives, but we never get the full story. And it's up to the reader, really, to create the full story in their own head, as she might be doing on the bus, inventing a background story for somebody who she overhears arguing with their partner <laughs> over the telephone. That, that's what I think she's trying to do with this, with this book. 
Now coming to the book, The Birth of Emma K. You talked about Sword Long's contribution to Hungarian literature earlier. Where do you place this short story collection among Long's other works of fiction? So this book comes really in the middle of his career, or perhaps after the midpoint of his career. He's already published a series of novels that, a series of novelize, novels that present fictionalized lives of historical Hungarian and Transylvanian figures, and then follow a number of collection of short stories. This one in particular, I find to be quite uh, ex- experimental. He is pushing the style. He's pushing his. He's pushing the style in the sense that sentences are incredibly winding. They allow for digressions. Clause follows clause, and these digressions allow us into parts of the story that I think other writers would just cut out. He's not so much interested in the plot as he is in capturing some sort of mood or emotion, the sense of a desire or a feeling. That seems to be what he's most interested in this collection throughout it. All of the characters in each of the stories are somehow urged on by a desire of some sort, whether it's a desire to find love, whether it's a desire to simply find a company or companionship, whether it's a desire to feel a sense of freedom of some sort, but very few of them are successful, if any of them. And I think he is looking at that philosophical idea of being trapped in your own world, trapped in your own reality and trapped in your own existence with these desires that will never really be fulfilled. God on Gellert Hill. Is it Gellert or Gellert? It's Gellert. Gellert. <laughs> okay. This pronunciation is all, especially when it comes to nouns, I have a lot of difficulty. You're doing very well. <laughs> God on Gellert Hill is a unique story. Uh, you talk about son of God, observing everything, being witness to everything, thinking about the incidents. His inability to intervene between the couple, he doesn't seem to be an omnipotent God. That adds to <laughs> the tension of the story. No, exactly. He's not an um, uh, omnipotent God at all. And he's, this is his problem his desi- that he faces in this short story. I said earlier that uh, all characters are have some sort of desire or some want that I will never, that will never be satisfied. And this character who is essentially Jesus has, has a desire for to be all powerful and to be able to change the lives of his subjects, his followers to uh, humans to, for the better and to allow this couple to, to be in a loving relationship with each other. But unfortunately, he's not able to do it. It turns out that the Son of God isn't all powerful at all. Um, and this is what really grinds his gears. The couple keep on fighting about silly things. And he gets depressed to the point where he wants to send, he wants to send a message to the people of Earth, something that is life affirming and perhaps grant somebody with all, with complete power, somebody who can perhaps walk on water, for example. So we have this ridiculous situation where we have the Son of God who is, who is fantasizing about creating 
a new son of God on earth who might potentially have the power to change people's lives and for the better. The couple, of course, never managed to resolve their differences and will only ever bicker until the end of time. And it's quite a good touchstone or introductory story for the entire collection. The idea that there are these desires that will not be fulfilled and that the also it works as a a meta narrative as well. We can consider Jesus in this short story, perhaps as the writer himself, wanting the characters to to work it all out and to have some sort of happy outcome, but knowing that he doesn't have the power to do that and allowing the the stories to unravel in the way that they want, the stories themselves want to unravel uh, and allowing the characters to continue as they themselves will continue. No, writer uh, being son of God, it's a beautiful observation, actually. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense. What is really funny to me, the son of God is so possessed by these couples. It's such a trivial thing that there is a war criminal freely roaming in Budapest. He becomes distracted by this couple to the point where he compl- he recognizes that, that a war criminal has just passed on a Croatian tourist bus, but decides to ignore it because he's so occupied with Ida and Tom Ash's love affair. In fact, he has a lot of uh, sarcasm and uh, beautiful humor, dark humor, I would say, in his stories. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Now we'll come to the other story, the longest in the book, Birth of M.R.K. Somehow he was able to get into unborn baby's mind. I think it's a good example of what he's able to do in this collection. We go from the first introductory story in the collection where he is inhabiting God and then move to the last story in the collection where he, the writer is depicting the thought process of embryo, essentially, uh, an unborn and later an, an unborn uh, fetus. We have in parallel the the story of the the couple, the mother and father, who accidentally ended up falling pregnant and expecting Emma Kovac. And we learn about their situation, their family. You get a little bit of a sense of the atmosphere and the mood of um, Transylvania under communism. But in parallel, we have the story of Emma herself. Once she is conceived, immediately there is this magical, quite surreal description of her desires, her want for growth and her struggles as the her grandparents and the family of the mother come up with every single a method possible to try and um, lose the child. It's the particularly the descriptions of Emma as an embryo I find quite magical, and that's really where the text kind of leaps into this other world and leaps into this other reality. Tell us about your upcoming book uh, translation, Market Day. Market Day is by the Hungarian writer Pál Zavoda. It is a short novel. And quite, it actually began life as a theater play, a series of monologues. And what it does is it investigates 
What it does is it investigates events that took place in 1946. These are true events that took place in 1946 after the Second World War, after a small number of Jews had returned to a town, a small town in the Hungarian countryside. And shortly a pogrom took place. And so it investigates how events could lead to creating a mood in which members of a community might want to rise up and attack their neighbours, essentially. These are people who they know, people who they have grown up with. Why they would want to rise up and attack their neighbours, especially after knowing that they have returned from the concentration camps abroad and lost the majority of their family. So it investigates, it investigates the story of the assailants, who might be Hungarians, but it also investigates how political parties were able to gain from this as well on both sides. The communists were able to point out Jews as capitalists who were speculating and trying to bring down the value of the new currency, while the right wing continued to voice really the same messages as had been voiced in the, in, during the Second World War of the Jewish community being some sort of problem in society. I worked on this novel during a lot of COVID, so under lockdown. And at the same time, while I was translating, there were an endless amount of conspiracy theories raging around the internet. QAnon was raging around the internet. Trump was still in power. And so it was very interesting how these historical novels set in 1946 were still so uh, prescient today and how little actually the conspiracy theories have changed. There were actually similarities between the theories that existed in 1946 and that are still being thrown around by the likes of QAnon today. So that was really quite a shocking thing to, to understand while I was translating the text. It, very relevant considering uh, the simple idea of how a, a mood can be created for violence by a uh, mass society who are gaining their knowledge from unreliable sources. And look forward to the book. I think it's coming out in December, right? Coming out uh, autumn. I'm not, I can't quite remember the month, but it should be coming out at some point this autumn. Which are the other Hungarian works that you would like to see getting translated into English? For the past period, I haven't been really looking around for, I haven't been looking around for new works to pitch to publishers because I've been focused on what is already on my desk. Hungarian is such a diverse literature. There are a large number of titles that would be, it would be great to see in translation. We've talked a lot today about novels and prose, but there is Hungarian poetry is very much untapped. There are several very important Hungarian poets, uh, living Hungarian poets who really haven't been translated at all. Uh, avant-garde poets who I think are really very interesting, such as Otto Tolnoi is one avant-garde poet who writes a kind of what I'm going to call folk avant-garde or village avant-garde. It's very interesting. He writes the most beautiful poems about cauliflower or a cow. It's really fantastic, full of humor, but also full of darkness. There are, there's the poetry of Janos Marno, who is also a, a very good avant-garde poet in Hungary, who's very little translated. 
Similarly, a good sense of humor and very dark at the same time. In prose, I think we've talked a lot about today about writers who are maybe quite late on in their careers. One writer, I suppose, who is in the middle of his career is, is Imre Bartok, who he wrote a 700-page memoir, which immediately caused a massive rift in the Hungarian literary scene and everybody started arguing about what a novel is and whether this is a novel or not. Uh, I went to a, a panel discussion. Um, there's this regular panel discussion where Hungarian critics um, discuss uh, new releases and they discussed this book and it was the most, it was the busiest, it was the largest audience I've seen at this particular discussion. And the, there was complete division among the critics. Two of the critics thought that it was a fantastic work and the greatest, the greatest novel that had been written in a long time in Hungarian. And there were two that said, yes, it's very good, but it's not a novel and it's impossible to read. It's, I haven't reached the end of it. I've only, I've read around it a lot and I've read parts of it, but it would take me a long time with my Hungarian ability to actually get through it. But it's a very, in every way, it, it is quite innovative. Formally, it, it includes, it, first of all, it's a memoir. Yet it's a memoir in which you are constantly asking yourself who the hell the narrator is. It should be autobiographical, yet you're not really sure who this Imre Bartok is, who is actually writing the novel. In terms of form, it has book reviews in it. It has excerpts of found, quote unquote, found text from The Shining and from Magic Mountain. And it's very, again, it's, it's non-linear, it's very, uh, fragmentary in its form. And it would be, he would be one author who would be one to look out for in, in translation, I think. He also experiments a lot with genre. He wrote a trilogy of what could be called, which are uh, science fiction novels. But again, they are very philosophical, very intellectual. So he's blurring that gap between genre fiction, particularly sci-fi, and literary fiction. And any book, I think, that causes such a great division between critics that can get two two critics shouting across a <laughs> arguing across across a panel discussion and can draw such a large audience and arguing about what what is a novel must be something interesting could you please read out a couple of lines or a paragraph each from hungarian version of mrk and the english version absolutely well i'll read the english first I've chosen a paragraph from towards the end of the long story, The Birth of Emma Kay. And in it, we find Emma in her embryonic state, really coming to terms with the reality that she exists in and the sad state of the world. She had learned all that she could know. Nothing is fine. Being a thing of the world's matter is worth too little. Others may vainly sing its praises, but she won't. The problem is in matter, in the marvel that laws, in gravity, in causality, in interrelationship. There's no good to be found. Transformation comes with annihilation, annihilation with pain. 
The worm is buried deep within the laws. That one and one make two is bad. That electricity is induced in an electromagnetic field is bad. That carbon and silicon atoms burn the most violently while others merely flicker on tiptoes is bad. That the smallest grain of dust behaves the same as the biggest is bad. That the whole world is the same is bad. That we can't move to another because the world lets nobody leave is bad. Once a prisoner, always a prisoner. And I'll read the Hungarian. Amit megtudhatott, megtudta. Semmi sincs jól. Nem érdemes a világ anyagából lenni. Hiába hozzonnáznak mások, ő nem teszi. Az anyagban a hiba. A csodát törvényekben. A tömegvonzásban, a kauzalitásban, a kölcsönhatásban csupa rossz fészkel. Az átalakulás megsemmisüléssel. A megsemmisüléssel fájdalommal jár. A törvényekben lakik a féreg. Rossz, hogy egy meg egy az kettő. Rossz, hogy áram indukálódik elektromágneses térben. Rossz, hogy a szén és a szilícium atomok mindennél hevesebben égnek, mások meg csak lábújhegyen mernek lobogni. Rossz, hogy a legkisebb horszem is ugyanúgy viselkedik, mint a legnagyobb. Rossz, hogy ez az egész világ ugyanaz. Rossz, hogy nem lehet átköltözni máshova, mert a világ senkit sem enged ki magából. Aki rabja, örökre rabja marad.